our business manager, Sienna Hamlet, said, he's really great. It's one of the best Aww. podcasts. I'm like, I have no doubt. Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 125. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Thanks for listening in. I'm really quite chuffed to have the homie Musa Kalenga back in the studio. He hasn't been here with me for a hot minute co-hosting this episode what's up man sure it's been a while it's been a while and i missed you man it's been a hot minute I man missed, i missed this furry mic i missed everybody <laughs> <laughs> but i'm back and uh, there's been a lot going on and i'm hoping i can share some of that with everybody i told people last the last time we were on you were busy being great elsewhere please tell me this is so <laughs> <laughs> it's always so we were trying to as you know we you know we're running a couple of businesses and we're bringing them into the same space so yeah we've been consolidating and and trying to be trying to be the best yeah Yes, tell the people though. Listen, Musa and I are both really excited to have an extra special guest in studio with us for our very last in-studio taping of 2018. Uh, Here to factor in on a quote-unquote hype versus reality theme conversation that we'll be having later on in this episode about the development of Africa's fintech landscape in 2018. And also here to give us the low-low on the unfortunate state of play in Cameroon's Anglophone region. She is... The one, the only, Viola Llewellyn! Yeah! Viola Llewellyn! Hello and welcome to you, Ms. Llewellyn. I'm so chuffed to be here in the room of uh, tech brotherly love and intellectual excellence. Wow. wow. Listen to that. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. That's we'll magic. take it. That's Listen, magic. for the benefit of those of you who are not familiar with this force of nature, and I don't use that turn of phrase lightly. Oh, thank you. Viola Llewellyn is the UK-born Cameroonian co-founder and president of a fintech platform founded in 2013 called Ovamba. Um, she's also the company's general manager of its Cameroonian operations. Now, in 2014, correct me if I get this wrong, Viola, Ovamba attracted significant investment from uh, the UK-based GLI Finance, and uh, they set up their first operations in Cameroon to prove their model. And then in 2016, after you know managing to land some wins, uh, Ovamba also landed investment from a Japanese fintech investor called CrowdCredit. Have I got things right so far? Absolutely. Great. So we'll certainly talk a little more about Ovamba in a moment, but I know that as far as introducing you personally, I've left out a ton. Um, your complete bio and profile run deep, lady. <laughs> uh, so here's a hack for briefly fleshing out who you are as a person and what matters to you. What Musa and I are going to do is read out your Twitter bio and have you unpack what stands out to us. Is that okay? I say go for it. <laughs> okay, Shall cool. I shoot. So at VA Llewellyn on Twitter reads as follows. Co-founder and president at Ovamba for SMEs. We've said that. TED Talk alum. Okay. Oh yeah, coming out on the 19th of November. Truly excited. It was the reboot session with Boston Consulting Group in Toronto. Wow. Nice. And what's the A in VA Llewellyn? Atabong. Atabong. From my father's side of the family, the Bangwa people in the Fontem region. Wow. Shout out yeah. to the people. A tribe in Cameroon that are often called 99 cents. And I don't mean that as in less than a dollar, but they tend to think they know everything. I think it rubbed off. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and I mean, uh, well, let's stick to the bio. I have so many questions, but let's stick to the bio. We said this is a hack, right? Uh, cool. So we've done TED Talk alum, speaker, 
So here's the thing. Are you really the first African female founder to speak at Slush? Apparently so, both in uh, Finland and Tokyo. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Slush, it's the annual tech event hosted in Helsinki, Finland. Um, I'd never noticed that we've never had an African woman up there. Yeah, but I don't know whether the distinction is African woman, period, or African fintech founder. founder. Okay. So according to the great folks over at Slush, they were very excited about that. And I think... It was also about what happened in the Vanity Fair issue as well. Right. Listen to her just name drop these publications. It's not my fault. Hey, 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 hey. So what do we have next, Musa? Fintech founder. Okay, that we've established. Mm -hmm. And advocate for diversity and equality. Champion of women and all things African. Shall we pause there, Bert? So you were telling us offline a little bit about your upbringing and how you were born in, uh, in, in London, but... At the age of 12, moved to Cameroon. Talk us through like what you'd consider the most formative parts of your life that would lead you to, to sort of put this out there as your bio on Twitter. Well, apart from the fact that um, as Africans and especially as women, we only like to put the shiny bits out there. And I believe that we're far more informed by what goes wrong with people Mm. or how they overcome difficulties rather than all this super bits. I mean, just the other day, my husband sent me this really great graphic that shows, you know, the typical Olympic podium, first, second and third, but behind the wall is a whole bunch of foundational stuff, difficulties, challenges, failures, fear. And we are all made up of these components. So being born and raised in London um, to my parents who had a really hard time finding somewhere to live because of the way England was in the 60s. And my mom feeling afraid that if she didn't show her children where she came from, they wouldn't have an African-rooted relationship with her. Made no sense at the time. All I was worried about is I'm not going to be able to watch Top of the Pops on a Thursday. So she ships us off to boarding school. Hateful experience. Didn't like it. Cut all my hair off. Actually, that's an important point, but we'll talk about that later. Um, And I had a very hard time learning because the African style of teaching back then was really, I'm going to tell you something and you're going to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had been raised in what's called a hothouse environment by my dad, who was very much ahead of his time. I was taught to use all of my senses to acquire information, which really enhances your ability to remember things and apply context and look for patterns in things. This is important because when I came back from Cameroon, I was 16 years old. And I ended up going through a lot of difficulties in my later teenage years, such as getting pregnant when I was 19. My child died, went through a very abusive relationship. But I never got to go to university, but it didn't stop me from working for IBM or any of the other great tech firms as a 21-year-old black girl in the 80s, because your ability to apply knowledge is way more valuable than what you know. Information is is pointless without application. Dang. Just, oh my word, yeah. I so that. I mean, so, so you mentioned IBM. Yeah. It wasn't just them Wang though. Computers, Digital Equipment Corporation. Um, actually, and then you turned consultant you as well. Yeah, at some point, there's something I completely forgot, and I yeah. never mentioned this on my bio. I used to work for a company called Verimation. Ever heard of them? No. Okay. You ever heard of CACI, Kaki, Kaki? They are the marketing firm for technology. Back in the eighties, is what they did. Okay. But. Verimation was a part of Volvo. Volvo was one of the very first 
companies to create an email system. Oh, wow. And I sold that to corporations when I was 20 years old wow. in the nuts. UK. That's nuts. It was in the days of a Philips dumb terminal, that really weird noise the modem would make. And all of these dark screens, there was no UX. They were just getting into what you see as what you get technology, as it was called back then. And I was using, let's see, I'm 53 in January. Wow. So that was 33 years ago, I was using email. But then again, it's in our genetic makeup. Africans are the original tech nerds. We forget that. Everybody talks about the Greeks and the Romans. We were there at the same dawn of time. Mm. It should not be a surprise to anyone. So going through all of that and ending up in consulting when I moved to the United States on holiday at the age of 26 and just not leaving. That is just nuts. I mean, so now that that kind of wraps up that piece of your Twitter bio because Mm -hmm. you're not an advocate for diversity, it sounds like, or equality on the basis of it being something cool to like vibe with online right now. Right. This is your life. Like, don't underestimate people. Don't underestimate yourself. You know, don't look down on people because they're not your gender or, no. you know, Seriously. they come from Africa or you or you think this, that and the other. They weren't born in the right part of London or, you know what I mean? I spent my childhood underneath cars with my dad and in the kitchen with my mom. I remember receiving a microscope for my birthday and loving it. Yeah. If people gave me dolls, my mother would just say, you're wasting your money. I would eventually destroy the thing or just make clothes for it. After all, needlework and clothing and fashion is engineering and construction. Pretty much. Which, if you wire a child... You design thinking. Yeah, design (laughs) thinking. That's exactly. When you're you're a female and you're young, you have to instill the, the ability to think in 3D in order to make science relative, no matter what the topic or the discipline is. I was really lucky to have that. That's incredible. And I just want to understand one thing before we move on. So you cut your hair when you went to boarding school. Why yeah, did you they do cut that? it off. They do this in, in Africa. They yeah, cut they your hair off. they do as well. Some schools, uh, yeah. Yeah, so often. Uniformity. Just have everybody uniformity be, yeah. to distinguish you from other women outside as a child. I think they meant it as protection. But what happens, and my cousin Elizabeth Bintliff, love that woman. She's with a junior achievement in Ghana, wrote the most incredible piece that struck me till today that you will cut the hair off these girls and remove their ability to look in the mirror and see something that they like. They will never have an understanding how to manage their physicality, which is part of personal branding. Then they get out of school and they actually don't know how to do their hair. Hence, we're running around wearing hair hats, aka wigs. And then you expect them to become attractive, figure out how to operate with the opposite sex and say, why are you not married? I wasn't allowed anywhere near boys. Boys looked at me and thought it was an ugly piece of work anyway. So we have these conflicting ways in which we manage and subjugate a female expression. Sometimes well-meaning. Sometimes well-meaning, but it often has a rather unpleasant effect. For where we are in Africa, I say, uh, I believe in the democracy of choice. Interesting. Because when I I was getting my ID, sorry, this is a side note. Yeah, yeah. Digress, (laughs) my brother. Digress away. When I was getting my, what they call a national registration certificate in Zambia, when I went back there, Mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't give it to me. Because I remember at some stage at this big Afro, and I used to have these plats. Yeah. And so I remember going to the, to the they call it the Boma in Lusaka, where it's like, you know, you get all this stuff issued. Um, and I remember them saying to me, you, you, you can't get your, your, your photo taken because you're yeah. not in your most natural state. And I was like, what do you mean I'm not in my most oh, natural state? And they actually turned me away. And obviously at the time I traveled from South Africa because I wanted to get my, you know, my national registration, yada, yada, yada. But they wouldn't let me get it because I had hair. Black what about the irony that our, our courts, our courts um, still have, I mean, 
I don't know if it's true in in uh, in Zambia, but I know it's certainly true in Zimbabwe. It's certainly true in Kenya that the you're going to mention the white wigs. The white wigs are still worn. Like they won't take a picture of you in in, in cornrows because it's not natural. There's to remove those. Yeah, there has. I been. asked somebody, what is the purpose of the white? It's supposed to convey a sageness and. Um, uh, knowledge. Yeah, and I, I believe also they, they they say they inspire like awe in the justice system. Yeah, you know, funny. that's it yeah. is total bollocks. Yeah. And I also got bounced from a Catholic church in Zimbabwe <gasps> for the same reason. <laughs> they said to, they said to me, "You can't come to church with hair like I that." I can believe you, brother. I God grew my it. hair and will let me into heaven with it if I am sin free, which I'm not. <laughs> that is we gotta nuts. Love, love this continent. Love it. Listen, I mean, I have to be, I have to say, like, we're totally humbled at the lens that Viola's gone to to make this appointment. Thank you so much for being here. Absolute I mean, we're pleasure. leaving so much unsaid here. Uh, we've had the benefit of obviously hanging out with you outside of, you know, this recording. And so if if I can just advise anyone who gets the chance, hang out with this lady. Like, you will not be the same. It was this awesome time. But you're easily one of the most in-demand Africa-focused fintech founders in the world right now. Man, woman, boy child, girl beast. child, beast. <laughs> like, like, all of it. Um and so for you to prioritize this appointment with us and, and then, of course, the one-on-one conversation we're going to have later, you know, where we're going to talk digital assets. Um, I mean, literally, you worked us into your international business and speaking schedule. We're, we're just on it, Viola. Thanks so much for being here. I am really thrilled. And although I knew I was going to do this, um, our business manager, Sienna Hamlet, said, he's really great. It's one of the best Aww. podcasts. I'm like, I have no doubt. So you must thank Sienna for forcing me shout to change to my you, flight. Shout out to you, Sienna. Shout <laughs> out Yay, to Sienna. you. Because it will be happening. Again, I mean, shout out to team. Um, yeah. None of this would be happening. And again, like I mentioned, this is our last show of the year. Uh, right up front and not at the end, I, I want to shout out to, like everyone who's made this year an incredible year. It's it's really quite special to to close out the year in this way and for you to literally fly out to, to be with us. It takes a village. Yeah, it takes a village. So yes, um, with all protocols observed, um, by way of helping us all wrap our minds around what Ovamba exists to do, I think it's probably wise to spend a few minutes asking you some questions about this business you're building. Is that okay with you? I'd love to. Fantastic. So Musa, kick us off, man. I mean, as a co-founder, I mean, what are the what are the kind of gaps that you've that you've uh, that you've found? What what are you trying to solve for as a business, um, and how do you bring that into the value that you're creating um, at the moment? And you're doing an amazing job. Thank you. Yeah, there are, we are three co-founders: uh, Marvin Cole, who used to live here in Joburg at one point. Oh yeah, and Prashant Mahajan, who is holding the reins of tech development. He's a robotics expert in India, who spent some time with us in Cameroon. Marvin and I kicked off the whole Ovamba story in 2013, and we were using language that I would probably kick somebody in the head for today. We want to do stuff in Africa. What what exactly is that supposed to mean? And there is almost a gold rush mentality to wanting to go and do things in Africa. But um, Marvin and I started to realize that if you're not creating something that can be adopted, or answering a problem, then your success rate is going to be minimal. So access to capital is something that kept on coming back to us every time I would either lead a trade mission or take a look at what was going on on the continent. And so we really thought we were terribly smart and that the answer to access to capital was to go and help microfinance institutions to have more money to lend. Right. And that isn't quite it. Fast forward, the thesis that we have in place today is that Africa's business ecosystem does not support financial freedom 
and the development of wealth for Africans in such a way that it can be transferred down from generation to generation. There are bank accounts, but bank accounts don't deliver wealth. Mm-hmm. The greatest drivers of GDP and entrepreneurs and independent businesses in Africa's missing middle are involved in wholesale retail, trade, and construction, logistics, and commodities agribusiness. This group doesn't get services from financial institutions. Some of this group are informal and formal. Some of these groups, and I know for a fact in Cameroon, are older individuals or even young individuals who've not finished school, not classically trained, maybe informally, uh, sorry, functionally illiterate. They can tell you how much profit they have, but they really don't know how to engineer a business for the long term. They're not working with a business plan. So at the crux of what we do is we help these groups to grow by providing them with short-term capital for the importation of goods or the exportation of goods. And this speaks very much to where Africa's going in the fourth industrial revolution, which is the circulation of goods and services. This is why conversations about um, digital assets is so very, very important. That is what we do. But we drive this using technology. At no point am I aware of that we've ever tried to code Africa's genome for business excellence. Nobody takes into account tribal, ethnic, cultural, societal impact on the repayability of capital or digitized it or used AI machine learning to figure out how can we create efficiencies in a portfolio using this type of data and technology. Yeah. I think the the prevailing, sorry, the prevailing idea is that Africa doesn't know how to do business and we need I guess, the the global north or the west exactly. to teach us how to do business. But all the more reason why we built a, a natural language chatbot in partnership with Microsoft to, to be able to create that environment for that to happen automatically and systematically. So the short answer is yeah. we are a tech c- company that delivers financial services and access to real capital to wow. Africa's missing middle SMEs. And so why would you start in Cameroon? Uh, well, I've read that it's a country with over 200 local languages, yep. Muslim and Christian communities. Yep. And that economy, from what I've read, is almost entirely comprised of SMEs. It doesn't seem like the most ideal launch scenario. No, yeah. it isn't. But it's interesting. Even for someone who comes from Cameroon yeah. and obviously has a link to it mm-hmm. by blood. Well, as founders and as uh, tech startups, you usually start from where you know But Cameroon turned out to be one of the most amazing uh, petri dishes, so to speak. It's considered to be Africa in miniature. So there are things that you can extrapolate that are representational to what you might find in other uh, regions of Africa, other markets. And I knew my way around there to some small degree. I actually realized now that I knew less then than I thought. And it's just as well that my ignorance protected me. This was 2013, yeah? Yeah, 2013. Um, So it was a place where I knew people. It was a place where we thought to run an experiment of this nature will give us immediate results. In Cameroon, if you're going to fail, it happens rather quickly. (laughs) You do not get the luxury of a long run at all. It was just the right place to be. And it's allowed us to branch into uh, Ivory Coast and soon we'll be in a number of other markets. Mm. So small businesses, hotbed. How do you you make money? What's the model, right? So, I mean, obviously being in financial services and having to think, I suppose, around some some modeling around risk return and and, Mm -hmm. and extraction of small small businesses. How how do you make money? What's the model? It's a fee-based model. Okay. 
One of the great things about our first set of failures in the market with microfinance institutions was knowing that we didn't want to be a bank and understanding that there is a very thick dividing line in that part of the world whereby banking is defined as an institution that takes deposits from the from the general public mm. with the right to charge interest and pursue uh, defaults and non-payment in, in the courts. These things truly muddy up the ecosystem for allowing things to happen quickly. Mm. If you go to uh, pursue a default in Cameroon, there'll be police involved, there'll be a convocation, there's a lot of paperwork, there'll be a long court, you're attaching a lien, and this stuff can take a long time to recover capital. The problem with our ecosystem is that the ability to get money to move around that conduit at velocity with control is a major part of the problem. And so that is what we are tackling. Uh, I think that your original question to me is, why do we do it that way? Mm. It's because um, it's easier to charge fees, which is our model. We charge um, a percentage fee for origination. And every month that this customer has our service, very distinct language, is what we are returning to investors. Customers who come to Avamba are usually looking to grow by selling inventory. Customers who come to Ovamba and want money are trying to build their grandmother's house. Mm. <laughs> we had to figure out a way to make sure that we were not misappropriating the capital of investors because it's very difficult to track what people are really doing until you bring them into your ecosystem, which is what Ovamba plus the downloaded app is for, right. to be able to help our customers very, very quickly. Okay. So the model is fee-driven. The model relies on us importing a customer's goods, Clearing it through customs, which, as you know, can take a long time, be unexpectedly expensive, because these customers are suffering from cash flow management, using logistics and an Airbnb style of using other people's warehouses to store other people's goods in. Because if you've never been able to grow, you've probably never built enough warehouses because you don't have the business plan that tells you how much space you're going to need 10 years from now. We solve all the little tiny problems within business realities that truly affect growth. The problem has got nothing to do with money in Africa. It's to do with teaching customers how to be better customers, which reduces their risk, and providing them with business tools and analytics to make them better. So have you struggled in selling that notion to investors? Because just listening to you, I sense that scaling what you're talking about must be a mission. And a lot a lot of investors are in the fintech investment scene for its potential to scale. It's, you know, yeah. it's great margins and all of this. And what you're describing sounds really, sounds like it might frustrate that sort of it ambition. It certainly does, mm. except when we start talking about how we apply this to the commodities market right. and how our technology actually makes this so much more achievable. Right. And the fact that we're in a market that is incredibly scalable and addressable. If you're in Francophone Africa, you have one harmonized code for business and one unitized currency. Once people realize that, it's all... The problem that I find is we often look through the wrong end of the telescope at a problem. We don't ask the other questions in and around it to shape other forms of reality that could also be applicable. Mm -hmm. And we realize that you can make money available without having to lend. And you can explain to investors that the social impact of helping Africa's um, business community become efficient successful 
profitable and wealthy means that the population explosion that we're expecting in 2050 will probably produce individuals who are much more ready for a lot of the products and services that are going to come both homegrown and outside. We have to start somewhere, but the problem is a lot of people don't want to be the first into the pool. It's only now that fintech has reached a a certain level of maturity, even though it's still in its infancy, that people are trying to now look at other solutions to solve the problem. We can't all be in PESA and we can't continue to live in a dearth of remittance payments and mobile wallets. That's like being a one-armed bodybuilder. You've got one skinny arm, one super fat muscle. If you've got all these payment plans, but, uh, but the capital is sluggish, who's paying for what, why? And how can we create more products to be bought and sold to make this payments um, error even more successful? These two go hand in hand. And we often forget to look at the continent, massive as it is, from this 50,000 meters point all the way down to the macro side. Ovamba believes that we're the equivalent of what happened in San San Francisco during the the gold rush, where the people that made the tools – to pan gold were the ones that became wealthy. Yeah. We're creating the tools and the, and the to create... the guys who made the jeans for... Exactly, the, the, the denim, rivets. The denim, yeah, the rivets. Yeah, yeah. And the, we're uh, making the tools to create the ecosystem so that everybody can be wealthy together. Right. Amazing. Sure. I mean, coming up to to the point that you've, as you said, you've had a few different pivots along the journey yes, as you've discovered have. things. Um, uh, what would you describe as the one that fundamentally changed the way you think about this continent and your business and the potential thereof? Um, because, I mean, as you said, you come in with a certain kind of predisposed set of assumptions mm-hmm. and you come in with, you know, IBM models and all these wonderful things that you've experienced. Consulting. Consulting, yeah. you know, yeah. a wonderful language and, you know, four, four quadrants. Um, and then you hit the ground running and uh, you obviously have some, you know, as you said, no luxury of failing over and over again. What do you think was a pivotal moment that you kind of realized that, you know, the shift or the pivot or the change that needed to happen? Um, and, and can you talk us through that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Well, Marvin Cole, dear business partner, fabulous friend, um, is ex-McKinsey has a background in mergers acquisition, had done work in China and had been um, really learning and understanding and doing consultancy in the payment space and in bank modeling space. And combined that with the fact that in 2011, 2012, 2013, um, the American government were talking about issues around Title II, Title III, the Jobs Act, and this whole crowdfunding thing came out. You know, we were talking earlier about Africans that are original nerds. We're the original crowdfunders. There is no corner of our continent where there aren't maybe a group of women saving together and using each other's social equity as a risk model to figure out should they be able to trust you. I mean, it starts as basic as no one gets married in the village without their people. Yeah, without their people. For starters, you never never have the, you don't have a crawl big enough to to make all the lobola or the, you know, the the dowry necessary. Exactly, not doing You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you need the people. It's always been part of like the fabric of, of village life even. So the pivot for us was uh, first asking, why do these companies want this money? What are they really doing with it? And then accidentally, as we tried to thread the needle of avoiding tripping banking rules, uh, found out we'd actually became (laughs) Sharia compliant. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. By mistake. Total accident. By total accident. (laughs) Because we thought, you know, trade is a good area where technology is not being applied. There are technologies, but they're in silos. People have a screen to look at this and look at that. But it's not being threaded together. So we thought, how about we help customers get more goods to sell and teach them how to be more profitable? And somebody looked at it and said, that's a... 
That's the Murabaha structure. Are you guys Islamic? Now, I wear a headscarf because I can't be bothered to do my hair. But I am, however, growing dreadlocks under there. Um, Marvin's not a Muslim either, but I looked at this and so did he. And we realized this is the perfect tool for Africa. It's not about religion. However, there are 400 million Muslim businesses that can't go into a bank. And if we're talking about exclusion from financial services Mm. and banks don't do this, well, then this could be a really groovy thing. So we learned and we actually got certified. We trained. And then we digitized and coded it. Wow. Man, oh man. I love that. So I'm so glad that we're going to have more time together because uh, heads up to all our listeners, uh, Viola and I have a one-on-one conversation where we're going to dive into the whole digital assets thing because clearly based on what we've spoken so far you can tell why i can't wait to like get into the meat of it it's going to be very groovy it's going to be groovy i love that you're so, i know you're so i'm old so old disco <laughs> old school. i'm so it's old groovy. disco it's that a is shame. so cool uh groovy it might just rub off uh, so i mean listen uh, perhaps in terms of just um closing this section off mm-hmm. and i think this is really important because we're about to uh, a little later on you know take on fintech in 2018 mm-hmm. you know pipe versus reality the good the bad the ugly what we like what we want to see more off less off what we should stay away from all of those good things and i think it's really important that our listeners get to understand where you're coming from and i think there's no doubt at this point we've done that but you know give us a high level overview of your scoreboard um you know what have you raised how big is your lending book are you profitable mm-hmm. what are your margins whatever you're, you're comfortable sharing with us that helps us you know hang our coats as it were you know, what kind of revenues are you making? What's your geographic footprint? You know, give us what the scoreboard in your boardroom looks like and what you guys post. I usually tell the truth on everything, but I'm going to edit it slightly because we are um, in the beginning stages of a serious A raise and are Go, speaking to Vamba. Go, Vamba. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a good start. Um, so, <laughs> so I'll give no you some pressure. very basic no numbers. Yeah. Um, we have had, I would say, almost 1,100 transactions flow across the platform since coming out of beta. Our beta lasted about two and a half years. During that beta phase, we pivoted and experimented with things like using house, land, collateral, and various things like that while we were partnering with microfinance institution and those results not exciting at all. Um, during our first, let's call it six, seven months in business, mm-hmm. we funded 12 transactions with zero default rate, mm. which was, we thought, yay, till I realized we haven't gone through a cycle. We haven't finished growing. Mm. We need to loosen the model and, and experiment with the the outer reaches of how this will work when it goes well and when it goes wrong. And that's when we began to see how failure informs design yeah. and responses. So about 1,100 transactions across the platform, almost, I think about 270 customers have been funded. We've originated, I would say, about nearly 120 million in deal flow. Mm-hmm. We've funded about 22 million of that. Right. We raised uh, about maybe 10, 11 million in debt from various individuals, including crowd credit. And our model is very focused on very fast cycling of that capital because these are six month transactions. Um, the average transaction is about four months across the platform and our default rates hover about 6% and below due to the fact that we own the asset that we've imported and having to go to the bank, to the courts to uh, exact a lien, it's not necessary in our case. So for the investors out there, what they're seeing is a fully collateralized 
a short-term quote-unquote lending product that has both social impact, measurable growth KPIs. We've seen some customers who've had as many as seven transactions from us. And the amounts that we can fund is about half a million euro per transaction, because it's at that point that it becomes really meaningful. There are people doing $100 and $1,000. Yeah, so the micro, the micro yeah, plays. We are really in the middle. Um, what else can I tell you about that? What I like about that is because we are very critical on the show, mm-hmm. or at least I am quite often, uh, you know, around the whole micro lending space, mm-hmm. which is often, you know, touted as this whole financial inclusion oh, and sort of impact yeah. narrative, like always sold to us here. Yeah. And I, and given what, for little things. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I'm married to an actuarial analyst who who spent, you know, many, many years working in reinsurance and then in insurance. And my, my wife has heightened my uh, sensibilities towards, you know, the financial illiteracy problem we have on yes. the continent. We and really how do. very often we never marry the, the notion of, you know, the good quote unquote, the good, you know, micro lending is doing for the continent with, you know, the gaps in financial literacy. And that's why. And no one associates, yeah. there is no tagline at the bottom of any of those solutions that says, keep doing this with me and you're going to be so bloody wealthy, you'll be gagging. Doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen because the, the system is designed to do it. But is the system designed to deliver that result though? I mean, or is this really no, just designed to, to create a, a spiral of, of debt? Be- this isn't quite chicken and egg, but what I feel societally is happening is that people get happy with a little bit because a lot seems so unattainable. Let's take Cameroon and its problems. Let's just be right out there. You've got a president who's 85, who's been in power for, what, 30-something years? Welcome back, because he yeah. just got re-elected, right? Okay. That's what they call it. <laughs> um, you can't wake up in the morning and tell your child, keep going to school I'll keep working in the farm, paying for your school fees, because you can be anything you want to be. You could even be the president of Cameroon. No, expectation is already capped. That affects financial response. Because you start learning to be really careful. If you don't have what Marvin calls my reckless enthusiasm for what is possible, you can only go for what you think you can do. Sure. This affects how banks measure risk and it affects how entrepreneurs develop their business ideas. They will take what's been done somewhere else and do just a little bit of it, maybe just a little bit more, because there is no example of wild, crazy, uh, blew up out of nowhere, except some of the uh, unicorns we're going to talk about later. Yeah. But I truly believe, and your wife is right about financial literacy, it's not just that. There is an emotional impact to designing finance that can grow an emotional desire to do well. And I think we do that. And many people think, how can you equate finance and emotion? Yeah, it sounds fuzzy. It's Maslow's laws, right? That it's not fuzzy fuzzy at all. But it's it's real, yeah? It is. Uh, I'm planning to put some information together for the World Economic Forum on this. Mm -hmm. And I am, luckily, I'm contributing to the Brookings Institute on what this is like. There is an emotional capacity associated with how finance arrives, how it's used, and the result. Because when you are poor, your brain only works on subsistence. Take a look at what happens when people win the lottery. If you've been poor, Mm. okay, how many millions I give you? You will wreck that thing and come down to zero. Mm. If you're a day worker and you're only used to, let's take what Americans are very foolishly enjoying, uh, helping well a little African with $2.25 a day. 
Well, you're only going to think about how to get the next $2.25 a day. We've actually begun to create technology, something called the GPS, the Growth Performance System, to help some of these businesses develop the metrics that are beyond a dashboard. Dashboards are difficult to understand. Mm. But how can we teach you as a business owner, because most of them are single, they're Mm -hmm. they're individual units, to have an emotional response to and a desire to grow and do better Mm. to the point that you are willing to do what it takes to learn more. Hmm. How can we show you the facts of your choices and how it impacts your ability to feed your family hmm. and make um, generational planning for when you're not here anymore? Yeah. Finance affects everything. It yeah. is not just about a bank. Yeah. yeah. If you think about emotion, I'm just reflecting on my, my own journey as an entrepreneur mm. right? and my relationship with, uh, with money and capital and mm. the constraints of my thinking in relation to um, potentially how I was brought up. And I think it's really true because I interact a lot also with small businesses that effectively will tell you about an idea. And, and I'm thinking about one particular young lady I, I, I've been I've been mentoring who's trying to, you know, create a, a startup in the in the prosthetic space and and, and Nice one. 3D printing? Um, yeah. Nice. Um, well, that's one of the that's one of the solutions. And I and I and listening to the way she's thinking about the way the business the problem the business solve, she's super passionate about it and she can quantify it on the emotional perspective. Yeah. Yep. When she has to convert that into do you know what it's going to take to actually achieve that? There's a gap between her, you know, allocating the value monetary wise mm-hmm. and also the value that that's going to create for the, you know, people solving yeah. the problem for and I think about my own journey is that I think that is definitely a, a hurdle I've had to work on in my own mind yes. to be like if you're going to think about solving a problem like minute or like clock whatever that we build mm-hmm. um do you have the consummate knowledge and understanding of what the financial impact um, or the financial muscle that is required to solve that problem? And I and I can honestly say, no, I probably didn't. And by interacting and engaging with different people and by, you know, reading certain stories and understanding certain viewpoints, you start thinking, maybe we're underselling ourselves along yep. the way, right? Yeah. As opposed to understanding the proper value. So, so I, I completely identify with that. I mean, so, I mean, listening to you, I can already hear some people going, you always throw the, the fintechs under the bus, you know, the branches of this world, the MCOPAs, the, you know, sometimes even like the Lydia's of this world. And and I'm like, it's not so much that. I don't think they shouldn't exist. I think, like you say, where the issues you've just described most aren't addressed, I think it's disingenuous to to sell yourselves, all of you listening in that space, as this amazing thing for our continent when we're not really thinking through all the implications of what but it requires. all part yeah. of the same river. If you want to equate it to the fact that Africa is underrepresented in terms of numbers and its sheer actual size and is underpopulated. So is our capacity for creativity and these solutions. Fintech is not just those guys that you've talked about, but we often make the mistake of hanging on to the first rafter that comes out when you throw it out to sea. There are other areas of fintech that will come and develop. After all, what, 20, 30 years ago, wasn't an ATM machine considered fintech? Pretty much, yeah. Is that still exciting? No, it bloody isn't. Visa cards were... Yeah, and we've leaped over that. Everybody is playing an important role in the development of an ecosystem that still comes down to what I think is um, the improvement of the human condition and the democracy of choice by technology Mm -hmm. and finance. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I just don't think we believe it as Africans. I don't think so. Oh, I do. I would, I would almost quit watching Batman. (laughs) (laughs) The lady loves her comic books and her cartoons. Yeah. Yeah.
No, but you're so right. Look, I mean, I'm pretty sure we've lost some of you listeners. I think... Uh, for Bye, the, listeners. No, no, no. When I say I lost them, because again, we don't think of these things as related or the same thing. Like someone's probably going, get on with the business. Of it goes what, you to know. a deeper issue. <laughs> yeah. but they, Are they, Africans yeah. comfortable revealing themselves as they really are? Are we comfortable about emotional issues? Are we comfortable about looking at all of ourselves under the spotlight? Yeah. Are we allowed to? Yeah. Are we comfortable with the fact that um, we literally murder creativity in children in exchange for classical educations that have got nothing to do yeah. with the journey that our so-called leaders say that we're on? Yeah. But yet fintech is is the shining light in yeah. the way to go elsewhere. In fact, all technology yeah. right now. Yeah. So if listeners, if you're out there and you're trying to run off because you either don't like what we're saying, I would say to you, yeah. ask yourself why you don't. Do you not deserve to have the right information to become seriously wealthy? Yeah, because the oversimplification is that we're winning because Impesa. That's exactly <laughs> like, it. I couldn't say it any better. You know what I mean? Like oversimplification is the enemy here because yes. there, there, there's a far more nuanced discussion and and thought process to be had around what winning should feel and look like winning has been redefined and how technology can can it's not a binary equation anymore you don't need losers to have winners in in our african reality yeah 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 progress maybe even a better word lots of it progress so listen i mean right now i feel like we we know enough about you know viola and november I shouldn't say we know enough. I think we, we that's all we have time for for now. Um, I, I'm going to be a mysterious woman forever. Oh, my word, yeah. Because, I mean, for, for you to be a fly on the wall of some of the conversations we've had like mm. leading into the show, like <laughs> you should be so lucky. Anyway, so let's discuss some of the you know interesting news headlines to emerge over the last month or so. Viola, yes. Musa, and... You know, Musa and I will do what we we always do, which is give our take on things. I don't think I need to ask you to jump in whenever you like. Um, I, pr- I pretty much count on it, uh, and and we certainly encourage it. So, with that said, Lego, uh, we start with some encouraging news out of Nigeria um, at the Fifth World Internet Conference in Wuzhen, China. The Nigerian government announced that a public-private partnership they're calling the National Broadband Penetration Program will be adding 18,000 kilometers of fiber infrastructure uh, to the country's existing 38,000 kilometers of fiber network. This initiative forms part of the, the National Broadband Plan, the country published in 2013, the aim, of course, to increase broadband penetration in Nigeria by a significant amount by, say, 2020. I think this is good. I feel fiber infrastructure not as cool right now given mobile mm-hmm. and wi- mobile wireless, you know, internet access. What do you guys make of that? Yeah, not as cool, but very necessary. I mean, if you, yeah. if you think about foundational ra- ra- radio is also not cool, but it's, it's still quite necessary in many instances, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think from a, as you said, from a foundational perspective, we are not going to be able to solve all things um, overnight with the same wand, and unfortunately, we've got many challenges in the African context. Secondly, I think if you look at, I think it was the World Health Organization who released the stat that said, for every, I think it was a hundred kilometers of fiber laid or connectivity laid down, something like ten people were lifted out of poverty or something along. Those lines. Effectively, uh-huh. if you equate that to that to eighteen thousand kilometers of infrastructure being laid down, how many lives are being impacted? Number one, directly, and then and then obviously, how many subsidiary lives are being impacted by having that infrastructure? Whether it's access to a job, whether it's understanding uh-huh. education. So there's, I think there's a, there's a fundamental impact, but we can't all solve it all at once. So but also via a, a medium uh, that's far more affordable than, you know, mobile internet access because we all know. 
how disparate mobile telcos are to to maintain margin. And I mean, we, yeah, the I most populous group in Asia goes hangs out with the most populous nation in Africa. It could work. I think it. I think yeah. Nigeria and China might have a plan they could hatch there. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's something <laughs> afoot, but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> providing. First of all, Nigeria already has a challenge with their brownouts, blackouts, and uh, unfortunately aging infrastructure, which is no different from Cameroon and many other places. And I often wonder whether the order of prioritization actually meets the needs of people at at the same pace and in parallel. It's great to bring broadband. um, Also need a bit more electricity, need a bit more sanitation and need a bit more plumbing. Mm. Some people need a bit more deodorant, but there you go. In which order? (laughs) To your point, yeah? In which order? Yeah, what's the order? I suppose, you know what I like about this is that I love how this is being prioritized, I think, at the right level. Mm. I feel like the whole let's harness technology debate is often from a government standpoint something that we, they rely on private on private sector to, and they de- to deliver. And I think they should. They but should. I feel like there's, cert- there's a certain amount of responsibility around infrastructure mm-hmm. that we as citizens of any country on the continent should well expect of our, of our continent. It's so the bare I, I, minimum. Yeah, so I feel like one of the things I, I use as an example often is I love these drones that drop, you know, mm-hmm. blood and medicine in remote areas. But I mean, we shouldn't like love them to the point where we don't hold our own policymakers to account when they don't build us roads, you know? Yes, exactly. So for me, that's the that's the vibe where it's like, it's, it's hashtag data must fall every other month yeah. when we want the mobile telcos to give us more affordable internet, which they should, or more affordable data. I'm trying but to it's figure also out co- if it's yeah. any part of the MCC um, challenge. Is that part of that? Because I don't know. It might be to undermine... Yeah. To try and undermine the 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 influence or the the prevailing influence of say an MTN in Nigeria. Exactly. I mean, we have to diversify offerings, and you. I know where we're going to cover things like intellectual property, but when you have countries that haven't even reached consensus on how they manage things like antitrust and unfair advantage, and you have to create these diversifications, sometimes governments in their rush to try to show that they are a little bit advanced in their thinking and provide policy, jump to the biggest splash and the shiniest opportunity. And you don't know, and, they, and they'll and they say, we've done a feasibility study. No, you haven't. Mm-hmm. Not really. Yeah. Um, you've gone and done what you think is going to satisfy the largest portion of individuals. And although it's a great idea, yes. what's the long-term application for making sure that it expands with need, stays affordable, and what are you going to do with the data that's running along there? You're going to allow it to be free and accessible or are you going to uh, yeah and your partners in this project yeah. how much of that project do they and own? how much of that data are they going to use in yeah. order to continue to maintain an advantage over africa's economy it's the same thing that got done when you get some individuals from china to come in and build some roads and uh, they build the roads quick fast and in a hurry without exits or roads into the deepest of village so that we can stop talking about last milers yeah Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. See now. This is why you're in the building. This is why you're in the building, Viola. Hey, but listen. I am in the boys' club. Oh yeah. No, no, bring it. Bring that energy. We love it. We love it. Keep us honest here. And um and informed, of course, and, and thoughtful. But more good news at a, a recent well, it depends again how you define good. <laughs> good is not bad. Good. More news. More news. More news. That's a safer one. More news here. Um, at the recent Africa Investment Forum hosted by the Africa Development Bank, the British-born and East African-raised founder of the Kigali-headquartered Mara Group, 
Ashish Takar. He's announced that his company will be launching a made-in-Africa smartphone brand called Marafone. So, so look out, Rwanda and South Africa, because you're earmarked to host production facilities. He says that Marafone will be primarily designed to serve African markets, but also aim to, to serve continents such as Europe. So according to their own press releases, mm. they currently already employ Mara Corporation, over 14,000 people across 26 African countries in sectors spanning technology, financial services, and energy. And he's promised that many more thousand jobs you will be created what? as You know what? This is one of those things that either goes ridiculously well or terribly bad. Yeah. We have phones. Yeah, that work quite well. Yeah. Um, what will these phones do differently? Let's pretend that we're one country where the Africans as a collective have developed that point where they all have a collective pride in themselves and yeah. what the continent offers. So a buy into brand yeah. made in Africa. And, and <laughs> is what does made in Africa mean? What bit of it? I know the African Union has created a lovely idea around a unified market, which should lead to cross-border trade and development. We'll see. Let's hopefully they'll give everybody visas to see each other without any hassle that would or be long nice. lines. That so would be nice. um made in Africa telephones. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, is it, it the brand we're buying into here? Exactly. Is it the idea that we're bringing manufacturing jobs to, to the continent? Um, how much of the manufacturing do we own? Will the how many of these questions should we yeah. ask? Should the South African, you know, should South African regulators, lawmakers, Rwandese ones, how many of, how much of this should interest them when they chat with Ashish? Like, what are you actually bringing here for how yeah. long? How's the licensing going to work? Are you making the phones on the continent from the raw materials that come from our soil versus our usual play, which is um, you lot come in, mine our resources, we'll let you take it out, no taxes involved. Thank you so much. Now send it back to us. Finished. Now if we're at a such, premium, <laughs> yeah, at a premium. If we short circuit that, then I think the Mara phones a groovy thing and hope it's one of many. If it is a partnership with existing brands and it's really almost like an app on a phone. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We have phones. Was it? Afri I heard one? a very Afri horrible one? thing yeah. that um, Africans have more phones than toothbrushes. Correct. Did you read yeah, that? That's it. sad and pathetic. I hope it's if, not true. If that's true. That's yeah. really sad. Because some people have two, three phones. Because our teeth with need two love, folks. <laughs> yeah, you know, bring on the dentists who yeah, are going to, you know. So, but here's the, the thing, though. Um, I suppose. You know, there's the play that Transion, uh, Transion, Transion, Transion. Mm. I don't know, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a TMA. Yeah, yeah. So the guys that own Techno and all those other brands. Yeah. Um, oh, of course. And they're doing so great. And their sort of digital domination plan for the continent where they, they want to own hardware. They own the version of Android. They put on the phones they own. And then they own apps that are further a great down. Great model. Great model. Is is that the plan? Is that what is getting our countries interested in in Ashish's idea? Is it the the idea that listen, um, if you own the handset, you own the customer, and it's a data play that you know we want to keep. Even on though the we tend to it- be, I think um, some reports say that African adoption can be very sticky once that loyalty is in yeah, place. Once it's built, maybe he's banking on that. I suppose here's the question to you, listeners: Give us a sense of you know what your feeling is. What is what does Made in Africa say to you? What does it communicate to you? What do you think it should communicate? What do you think it currently does and what do you think it should? And certainly if you're using a Made in Africa consumer device, so I'm speaking to anyone who's currently using Afri One, perhaps you're a MyPhone user in, in days past. There have been some that have come and gone. So if you've used it, what was your experience and what was 
was there anything beyond sort of, uh, you know, the the utility of buying a phone that you bought into that's unique? We want to hear from you. Tweet us at African Roundup. Send us a post at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup or email us via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, we've had some interesting upbeat numbers to get us started. Um, now to some issues that aren't so nice to talk about. So it's it's Tanzania versus the journalists, oh. it appears. Um, so we'll start there. We've seen this coming. Yeah. Uh, we've seen Tanzania enact crazy laws to to basically regulate internet use and media production on the online and offline. Uh, we've seen how that's affected everything from newspaper publications to bloggers and vloggers. To hotel general managers wanting to slap people who yeah, are running that. a tech event. I actually was physically in the room when that happened. Really? Are you yes, serious? Yes, I was. So that's a, a reference to uh, the recent... Afrilabs. Afrilabs yes. event. I think it was a co-event. Afrilabs and um, Safa- uh, oh, Safari Sparks? Yes, I think Sahara Sparks. Sahara Sparks. Yeah. Sparks. Um, they had this big tech gathering, one of the biggest in East Africa, mm-hmm. which was, of course, marred by unfortunate events. But so shame. So, yeah, look, the news broke that immigration and security officials detained the Africa program coordinator of a, a, a rather large uh, NGO. And, of course, if it wasn't for, like, the quick response or quick thinking of that lady, like, tweeting the people yeah. and... And what that sort of sparked around the world to get them released, goodness knows what would have happened there. It's just really unfortunate to see what's happening in Tanzania. Well, there was a forerunner to that event just a few days before. when There in Tanzania, what happened was they changed the immigration rules without announcing to anybody. So all these individuals that were coming in, which is an economy driver, Mm -hmm. suddenly realized um, you thought you didn't need a visa. Actually, you do. So some people didn't make it into the country at all. And others... um, myself, my husband and a few others stood in line and had to wait for a visa. They had changed the policy and it was quite a scramble. It's almost as if something shifted in Tanzania that took in them the last from... last year or so. Yeah. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So, I mean, we mentioned this in passing because, I mean, I think we've been having it with, as far as Tanzania. Like, it's just, I think what, what we're talking about here is really just an escalation where it's mm-hmm. like, we thought it was only Tanzania's impacted. Clearly not. Mm. You can be an outsider, even a journalist with accreditation and all sorts of things. A visa to be in the country, not breaking any laws and, mm-hmm. and you can be affected in negative ways you, you don't expect, which is really sad. But let's talk about Cameroon next, which... Sure. You know, Viola, maybe you can help us make sense of what's going on there because it seems impossible to know who or what to believe about the state of play. It's Francophone Cameroon versus Anglophone Cameroon. This is as far as we can tell over here. It's kidnappings, killings, an incumbent And president. everybody shouting fake news. Yeah, it's fake. Is it, is it fake news? Is it not? Not is it, all of it. Is, is it an incumbent president being reelected in the wake of fierce armed opposition? You know, in your view, Viola, what's what's this all really about? Is it is it like French-speaking people just not liking English speaking people? Is it, is it, is it deeper than that? This is a really emotive topic. And there are so many differing opinions that no matter what I say, there will be an uproar. This is my personal view. I employ nearly 30 people in my office in Douala. Mm -hmm. And I think we've had almost a hundred people come through our doors as employees or interns or consultants. Mm -hmm. At no point in time, have I sensed animosity from a Francophone person that I know. But my first comment is, it is horrible that we're arguing and using these language terminologies to divide ourselves when these languages don't even actually bloody belong to us. Yeah. What is an Anglophone? 
It's an individual whose language has been provided to them by individuals who colonized us to begin with. What is a Francophone? An individual whose first language now is French because at one point they were French a French colony and the interf- the not the interference but the influence of France on Francophone Africa is such that you cannot survive colonialism from these individuals. Actually nobody can, but they are particularly tough. Now in the in the context of Cameroon, we are a minority in the Northwest and the Southwest. But the truth of the matter is there are some tribes that could be classed as quote unquote Francophone, but all of them grew up on the Anglophone side and they are culturally and emotionally related to us. These are our brothers and sisters. Not all Francophones feel this way at all. Mm. And not all Anglophones want peace. That's the sad thing. My gut is um, Mr. Beer has developed an incredible talent for sowing division and confusion. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the individuals who are supposed to be uh, part of the quote-unquote revolution actually belong to the government. But I don't know that for a fact. And I have become very weary of making comments that can be attributed to fake news without any facts. How are we supposed to get the facts? You won't let journalists who tend to be impartial and responsible observe, look, speak and provide news. You won't let certain people into the country. There's a guy by the name of Areo Benson who owns a wonderful organization and he was coming up with a slogan two, three years ago that said, I am Cameroon, hoping that we can get rid of tribalism and just be one unit. He got turned away from his own country, wasn't even allowed in. They have women like um, this journalist, is it Mimi? Yes, it's Mimi. Where the court systems are militaristic. They're not even civilian. Yeah, Mimi Mefo yeah. Tacombo. Laws get made up on the sport just as they like. Everybody is affected by this. Yeah. But the thing that I find, uh, I must say, and I, I'm grateful that you've given me this platform. I don't know anything about politics. I don't like politics. Politics suck. But I do know humans. At any point in time, we as individuals have the right to treat each other with a certain amount of respect, both professionally and in business, to do good business, exchange goods and products and money with fairness, to account for it, and to decide that the government is not responsible for our cultural conduct. Mm -hmm. Any police officer or military individual who thinks he can go jackbooting around on other people's heads is a human being. And he has a right to say, I will not violate these human rights. But they don't do that. We're in a very sorry state in Cameroon. There is worse happening than is actually reported. Killing of kids in their beds in schools, raping, um, harassing people on the street. In this day and age, it should be avoidable. It isn't. It isn't just about language. It's about, I think, the last screams of a dying... Uh, era. Okay. Right, so we've decided to leave it here for now and yes, we know that we haven't even started to factor in on the discussion topic yet, but this conversation took so many more twists and turns. And so basically we're going to ask you to wait just one more week before we bring you the second half of this conversation with Viola Llewellyn. If you've enjoyed everything you've heard so far, trust me, it gets even better, believe it or not. And uh, we can't wait to share it with you. So do look out for the next episode in just one week. And until then, take it easy, Africa. <laughs>